Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andrew Degler. In today's episode, I would like to play you back a conversation with Hanno Renner, uh, the CEO and co-founder of a startup called Personio. And if you've missed it, Personio is an HR platform that's born in Munich that has scaled across Europe to eventually become a unicorn earlier this year. So let's hear from Hanno in conversation with our editor, Robin Wouters. Hello, this is Robin Walters from Tech.eu, and I'm joined here remotely, of course, as usual, uh, by Hanno Renne. He is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Personio out of Munich. Uh, Hanno, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about Personio. What do you do? Thank you, Robin. Great to be here. So, yeah, Personio is a holistic HR management platform for small and mid-sized companies. We are covering the entire employee lifecycle from recruiting, uh, employee, core employee management and development. And uh, thereby, we're, we're helping companies between t- uh, 10 and 2,000 employees digitize the HR process so if they have more time for the actual people, but also integrate with uh, every other uh, tools they have in the business, such as Slack and many other tools to make sure workflows and processes flow f- smoothly through the business. Fantastic. Can you maybe take me back to the beginning of the company? Why was it founded? When was it founded? Uh, by whom, etc.? Just uh, sort of the, the, the historical background of it. Yeah, so we started the company uh, at the end of our studies, uh, sort of late 2015, early 2016, so a good five years into the, the right now. And um, we started the company uh, with the idea of democratizing HR software for SMEs, so realizing that there's companies like Workday and SuccessFactors that build successful but also useful tools for uh, large enterprises but that are not suitable, not just from a pricing perspective, but also from the way they're architectured, they're built, and they're optimized for small and mid-sized companies. So we wanted to make sure that these companies also get the benefit of digitizing the HR processes and uh, by helping them with a tool that, on the one hand, is fast to implement, easy to use, and cost-effective. And uh, that's how we kind of realized that that's something that's missing in the market and something that's a big need and have, can have a big impact on the market. And uh, we started a company in a, with two other founders and uh, been growing since uh, initially started uh, in Munich, Germany. Now we have five offices all across Europe. Um, we have uh, 850 employees distributed across the continent and uh, also uh, over 4,000 customers that we're serving in the different countries. Great. Well, that's a, that's a fantastic summary, I would say, with some, some numbers in there. So thank you for that. I'm wondering, because I, I read when I was reading coverage in preparation for this interview, uh, I, I heard that quite a lot, like Personius tailoring uh, to the needs of SMEs, because the bigger companies like SAP and, and, and Oracle are not really catering to their needs. But then I feel like I've heard that story before, because there's also a lot of startups that sort of claim, okay, we're, we're, you know, let the big guys handle the big guys and we'll sort of deal with the SME needs. So I've heard that story before. How did you manage to differentiate yourself to a degree that you, you're now, you know, one of the biggest companies in this space, especially in Europe? So I think, I mean, we, from the beginning on, uh, we came from it, uh, from a university. We didn't know much about HR. So we learned a lot from our customers. And I think that focus on customers and really understanding their needs has helped us not just say, okay, we're building something like an, vacation tracking system, but we, we in, in everything we built uh, really took uh, took the needs for SMEs to heart. And I think what's what sometimes misunderstood is like, despite they don't need and they're, they're, uh, it's not practical to implement an, a workday at a, at a 200 or 500 people business, it is uh, still something where they need a lot of adaptation, where they need a lot of flexibility inside a tool. And I think that complexity of keep building a simple tool that's easy to use by 
non-technical uh, users by HR managers that uh, that don't uh, have both the capacity and and the, the, the capabilities to to implement something very technical, while at the same time covering still a quite a lot of complexity, being able to have people adapt it, build very custom workflows inside a tool and so on. I think those are the things that really our customers like about the product and uh, something which uh, which we learned from our customers and that helped us uh, build a product that uh, we uh, we see a lot of adoption of, but also a very high retention rate. Great. Well, I think that's uh, it's, it's working nicely, uh, judging by the numbers, uh, I would say. Um, you mentioned that you have five offices across Europe. Uh, you're closing in on like a thousand employees probably by the end of the year across Europe as well. Does that mean that the markets or the markets in Europe are big enough for you to sort of double down on? Or do you see yourself expanding also to maybe US, Asia, Pacific, Africa uh, down the line? So we're really in the early innings of the, even the European market. So we have, as I mentioned, a little bit over 4,000 customers now, uh, and uh, we have 1.7 million companies in Europe alone. So therefore, we're, we're far away from even scratching the, the surface of the market. And therefore, we believe we can continue to grow across Europe for quite a while. And therefore, we focus on exactly these European SMEs. Uh, we don't exclude that we will go outside of uh, Europe at some point. Uh, but we believe that uh, as of now, we don't want to defocus and therefore do this, fa- as a, this uh, fo- a favor to our customers, but instead really make sure that we serve them best. And then when we feel comfortable uh, that that uh, we, we can add additional focus on top of everything we're doing already, then we might eventually move outside of Europe. Great. Uh, I'm going to stay on the topic just for one more question because we're running a, a content hub on TechU on uh, crossing borders, it's called. So it's about internationalization and expanding to, to other markets. What are some of the learnings you have uh, from expanding, for example, to the UK and, and Ireland, uh, which I think was a big one for you? Do you have any tips to share about you know, when you scale to other markets, things to take into account, mistakes not to make, etc.? Yes, I think... Uh there's very, very different approaches, of course, to go into different markets, and it depends a lot on the kind of business you are and so on. And therefore, I don't think there's a, like, we, we, we have made our learnings, but, but even even from that blueprint we've developed working for Personia now, uh, I don't, wouldn't say everyone can take that uh, just over and it will work fine for any business. That being said, I think there's a couple of things that uh, to be taken into account. And I think the biggest and gener- most generic uh, one is probably to, to really embrace the, the difference and the uniqueness of each markets and the different demands. Even though on paper, they might uh, look very similar. And even though uh, if you just do desk research, uh, they aren't, you really need uh, to to go into the market, start talking to customers, figure out what their needs are, how they're different, how they're buying differently, how uh, they, they might, you might need to have a completely different approach of how you're also selling the, uh, the product. And therefore, I think it it helps, and that's what we did when we started our international approaches to not kind of make it a subset of um, the German sales organization and just say, now you uh, uh, we just hire English speakers or Dutch speakers or Spanish speakers and sell and do those markets, but we really make it a separate entity, making sure that we have information and learnings we made within the Dach market flow across into these teams, but still having these teams enough separated and enough uh, uh, yeah, uh, f- free uh, to also figure out and make learnings themselves that are specific to their markets. 
Great, fantastic. Um, uh, Personio got on a lot of people's radars uh, last year in January when you raised a $75 million round. Uh, you followed that up with a $125 million uh, round, I think, uh, just a year after. Uh, January this year, at least it was announced uh, at a unicorn valuation as well, uh, $1.7 billion, if I'm not mistaken. So that's, uh, that's quite a jump. Uh, how much of a role has the COVID-19 pandemic played in that, in sort of, you know, uh, helping with the need for cloud-based solutions uh, like, uh, like the one that you offer? Yeah, so in the initial phase when uh, COVID-19 first hit, I mean, it was, of course, a challenge for us as a business ourselves as well, moving everyone to remote and, and make sure we, we uh, keep up the company spirit, the culture, and a lot of other things. That being said, I think the, in that initial phase, of course, there was a period where HR teams across Europe have been busy with anything but implementing software. Uh, but that took sort of one to two months last year. And afterwards, we saw a big surge uh, in demand for our software, given that, of course, uh, even basic things like signing contract uh, remotely uh, doesn't work. So uh, you need a proper SIFT system to manage. Uh, we offer e-signature functionalities as well. So this is just one of the many examples of things where, of course, the relevancy of the kind of uh, solution we're offering has increased and hence uh, we've seen an increase in demand from june onwards last year so in total we then uh, managed to hit our business plan which was ambitious uh, at the end of the year still um, despite the dip in, in q2 uh, and that certainly has has proven to um, uh, to also helped uh, raise raise that last fund um, and made especially our internal investors that were preempting it uh, be really bullish about um, investing more into, company, into the company. But in total, I think the, the summary is we would have aimed at growing in a similar race, um, but I think COVID um, and the digitization, especially in some of the more traditional businesses, has certainly accelerated some things. Great. Well, I'm guessing, I'm assuming that you still have a lot of uh, money that you've raised in the bank. Uh, what are you going to use it for? Is it to, to hire more tech, to develop new features and products? Is it to diversify uh, the features that you have, the services that you offer? Is it to break into new markets? Uh, probably all of the above, but what's, uh, what's the focus right now? Yeah, indeed, we have. Uh, we even, when we raised the last round, uh, had uh, more than 50 million left in the bank account, so we didn't uh, require any, any capital, but, uh, but it came at a um, yeah, uh, with a preemptive notion from our existing uh, investors, so it, it gives us now the freedom to, to just execute our strategy. So essentially, more money doesn't change our strategy, but of course, gives us the freedom to just focus on executing that and to the specific points you mentioned. So the big, big one for us always is investing into the product. We believe that serving our customers best means constantly improving everything we have and adding new products to uh, to increase the value of the overall operating system. That being said, besides, of course, hiring, therefore, a lot of and investing heavily into uh, our product engineering departments, which already today comprise 30% of the 850 people, um, we also do continue to invest heavily into a very strong customer experience function. So everything around customer success and service to make sure that uh, we can uh, also support customers with our product and make them successful. And then uh, beyond that, of course, the the expansion uh, is really important. These new markets which we've been entering, so we're we're active uh, by now in Spain, uh, Nordics, uh, Benelux, UK, France, and Italy. So that's a uh, six six markets we uh, we have people uh, working on right now, and uh, we're doubling down to these markets uh, with uh, translating the products, um, making sure we have uh, local support, uh, and all of these things uh, are, are areas of heavy investments for us. Um, I already mentioned in the beginning that there's a lot of sort of smaller startups um, dealing with the HR software in different ways. Uh, do you see yourself also making acquisitions to sort of grow, not organically, but to break into new markets just by acquiring new teams or new uh, market share? 
So we have made an acquisition in the past in, in Spain of a, of a payroll company, um, and uh, we're not excluding making future acquisitions to further strengthen the product suite. Uh, what we don't, uh, at least as of now, plan and think of doing is uh, acquiring direct competitors and just ramping down their products, um, as we both think that won't be a great uh, mood booster for a team that we're bringing on board, uh, as well as also for, for the customer. It's not a great experience to be to be shut down on an existing product. So we'd rather want to continue to invest and potentially make positions that help us continue to to be, uh, to be uh, a better product and be, become the best product that's that's available. And with that, um, yeah, hopefully convincing customers through that uh, as opposed to by shutting down a system they're using. No, it makes a lot of sense. Um, you mentioned that you had, uh, of course, your own challenges uh, to deal with the pandemic as a company. Uh, what were some of these challenges? How, how did you overcome them? How did you deal with them? So I think it's a challenge and an opportunity. Everyone at that point in time all of a sudden started working remotely and so on. And while, of course, the way we were set up before and uh, what we allowed with home office and everything, we had a technical foundation. So we, we had all the, the infrastructure in place um, to, to work remotely. But that doesn't mean that you're set up organizationally to work remotely. So if you uh, you have to change the ceremonies, you have to both on the team level on the company decide how can you do that, You how can you be effective, how can you do team meetings and so on. So what we did was we implemented a home office ta task force and that uh, team was kind of uh, both proposing changes by looking at what are other people doing, uh, serving internally, what are chances we, which we need to be solving, how can we equip people uh, better at home, how can we, how we support parents uh, that that are working from home with, uh, with their children, um, how can we also change our company routine. So we implemented a, a Metrics Monday meeting where we get together every Monday as a full team in addition to our uh, company-wide all-team meeting on Friday. So I think there was a lot of these things which we implemented and improved over time based on feedback we've received and, and based on learnings we made over time. And then also try to distribute learnings individual teams made of things that work really well, like a remote team event, into the rest of the business. And of course, you already had sort of a distributed workforce before the pandemic. So um, I'm wondering, how do you rate the, the quality of the talent that you have available to you in Europe? Do you find that you can recruit the, the best talent quickly enough uh, to really scale up? So hiring is always one of the biggest challenges uh, for any business. Uh, so we've uh, now in, in this year, we aim to grow uh, north of a thousand people, and uh, that means we're adding more than 500 people over the course of this year. And uh, we do have uh, around uh, between 45 and 50,000 applicants uh, every year to select from. But but still, of course, it's a big challenge to both get to those numbers of, of candidates and to then uh, have an effective process of managing them down. When it comes to the talent pool available, we, of course, don't just hire in Europe. We hire globally, and we relocate a lot of folks uh, to Europe as well. That being said, I do think we have a great talent pool in Europe. We have uh, fantastic universities. We have a lot of motivated, smart individuals uh, across the different uh, countries uh, and beyond uh, where we are uh, having offices already. Um, I think the one challenge that is not yet, uh, or the type of talent that's not yet available as much, is people that have gone through the type of growth uh, which we're doing right now and the next phases of growth. So we've, that's why we've oftentimes for the, for specific roles where we need that experience, which is not for all, but for some, we then hire from, uh, 
companies like Dropbox, where we got a uh, Jody, you know, CRO from, and a couple of other folks um, uh, or other companies like Stripe, Dropbox, and so on. And those are, of course, often more international companies, so the from the US, and therefore we also need to relocate there. And I think. That's now improving, luckily, as the tech chain, uh, scene in, in Germany uh, and Europe is also producing companies that uh, build much larger business than anything before. And then the talent from these businesses uh, will, of course, become available for other teams as well. But yeah. I think that's currently the biggest challenge when it comes to talent in Europe. Yeah, I hear that quite a lot. I mean, the tech scene in Europe is exploding, but at the same time, it's still relatively young. So you, there's not a lot of people who went through sort of that cycle of of building unicorns and then exiting and, and doing this over and over again. So that's, you know, we still need time for that, of course. Uh, the reason that I bring this up is because you are part of a group of people, a group of companies uh, that was involved with the Scale Up uh, Europe initiative that was recently uh, launched, or at least the manifesto was uh, presented at the Viva Tech conference in Paris. Uh, what can you tell us more about this initiative? So I think it's really acknowledging startups as a valid economic driver of uh, for an entire continent. So if we look at at, at Europe uh, and the different economies, we've we've uh, we've had a, a lot of uh, success uh, in a lot of uh, areas of uh, very innovative companies building cars or um, or other things. Uh, at some point, even smartphones with Nokia. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, when it comes um, to, to some of the more uh, novel technologies, uh, Europe has not produced any global champions. SAP is, is the only uh, tech giant that's, that's available out of, out of Europe, and that's been founded in the 1970s. And if you look at uh, the biggest firms globally and also in the US that, that have been driving economic growth, that have been uh, creating employment uh, at, at, at high rates and that are also at least uh, ideally would at some point pay taxes in those companies uh, the, uh, countries those uh, are companies have been founded in the last two decades maximum three decades companies like google salesforce uh, facebook and so on and uh, there's many more behind them in europe we have hardly any of them and the initiative of scale up europe is about making sure that we as a, a, a european economy can produce these global champions as well here in europe and uh, providing the conditions for, for this economy to also uh, grow and really produce economic value and uh, prosperity for the continent. And uh, so there's, there's, of course, a lot of work the companies and the entrepreneurs need to be doing, but there's also some of the uh, legal and political frameworks where, where we believe there's a lot of room for us to move, to be more competitive and to enable or make a fertile ground for these companies to, to grow and built much bigger than they have so far. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think the list that was presented, uh, the list of recommendations in the manifesto was about 21 items long. Uh, we don't have to cycle through all of them, of course, uh, but I'm wondering what, what is for you personally one of the, the most important ones, but also what, what, what are some of the low-hanging fruits that you think you know, we, we can do very quickly on a policy level uh, here in Europe to really advance uh, you know, as fast as possible? Yeah, so the 21 recommendations you spoke about are clustered in four boxes. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I think two of them are quite uh, relevant. One is around talent, the one is about capital. When it comes to talent, and that's, I think, the, the prime one, that's although the one I was most passionate of and, and involved most, uh, is that we, on the one hand, 
that's not a low-hanging fruit, but one that's really important, create a competitive employee option scheme for, uh, uh, for, for, for folks where uh, they can, uh, can equally participate in the success of the business and hence also uh, both just because it's fair and the right thing to do, uh, have that participation, but also to make uh, it more competitive to hire also other people from the US and so on, where some of the option schemes are more, more favorable for employees. Um, secondly, I think one that, that can be done quicker and, and potentially easier is uh, about a, uh, a European tech visa, where, where it's also easier for us to relocate talent and strong, strong people from all over the world and essentially make it easier and less friction than it is to go to, for example, the US, because then that talent will uh, at scale go the path of least resistance and and rather try to, to work here as opposed to moving to the US. But equally also within Europe, just making it, and uh, I've called it a, a European working contract, uh, but making it uh, possible and easier to have people move around the different European countries. So right now, we, for example, don't yet have an office in France, uh, but we have French employees. So uh, if someone of those uh, wants to work for a longer period of time at their parents' place at home, then uh, we need to have an establishment there and uh, and these kind of things. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to be able to, to especially in the new world of way of working post-pandemic, to make it easier for talent to move around, to make it easier uh, for for these uh, these schemes to, to work out. Um, uh, I think that's those on the talent side, when I think to, to capital, I think capital is less critical for us in order to uh, to build large companies because we have the availability. It's just uh, American capital, but it's more and more flowing into the, the European market, even for growth rounds. But I think the challenge we're seeing here is or why I'm sort of with some European patriotism feel there's, there's room for improvement is that all the value we're generating with, with companies like Personio and others flows back into pension funds uh, in the US and, and other places, uh, as opposed to also generating that same amount of returns into the local insurance and pension, uh, pension funds here as well, to again strengthen uh, our society and our economic system as well, with an aging population where more and more pensions need to be paid over the coming decades. And therefore, I think there's an opportunity for us to change regulations to make it easier for pension funds across Europe to invest into uh, these kind of uh, equity-based uh, and tech tech companies at a stage where they, they then also generate the right returns. Yeah, I think uh, being based here in Brussels, I know for a fact that the a lot of the things you mentioned are at the very least on the radar of the people, the powers that be, uh, so to speak. It's just a question, how do you translate that awareness into action, which I think is a, the really critical uh, point of focus. I, I think the, the initiatives to have is really really making sure that, that things change very quickly, even if it's just one member state, but you can take that as a blueprint, as an example of what can be done, right? So so let's uh, keep our fingers crossed for uh, for something to happen now that the manifesto is out. Uh, we'll be watching very closely, of course. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up. Maybe one final question for you. Um, because you're a first-time founder, essentially, so it's kind of a kind of amusing that you have some sort of already unicorn company in five years as a first-time founder. But what I would like to hear from you is for aspiring entrepreneurs or, 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 or first-time entrepreneurs that are listening in, uh, what, what is what is some of the, the main pieces of advice that you would give them when you start scaling uh, really from like 50 to 100 people to, to 500 and now 850? Uh, what are some of the key learnings that you had to sort of deal with as a first-time founder that you want to pass on to the, the next generation, so to speak? So I think one of the, the key, and it's more an um, umbrella learning, but it's the benefit you have as a first-time founder 
is that you haven't worked like I, and even in my case, I haven't even worked uh, Cambridge or, or university. So you don't have any of the the things that you've seen in other businesses and just assume that's the way uh, they need to be done. So you can take some of the advices that everyone talks about, like how important talent is and how much you should uh, take care of, of the, the focus and clarity and uh, the communication across the team and all of these things. You can take them very literal. And I think that's what we've done. We, uh, from the beginning on, had a very strict hiring process because we felt, uh, we felt well, if everyone says you shouldn't compromise and if in doubt, don't hire, then that's probably what everyone does. Turns out a lot of companies don't do that and actually thereby, uh, yeah, they're not, not as strict, but uh, because we were so naive, we actually implemented it in a way and that, that certainly helped a lot. Equally also with things like um, the clarity about goals and communication in the, in the team where we also, um, yeah, again, being, being quite, uh, quite naive and not uh, having seen it before, we assumed, well, everyone would probably very deliberately sweat OKRs, sweat the details there, and then we make sure that everyone knows what they're working on and how they're contributing and so on. Turns out not a lot of companies are doing it, but it's a fairly easy thing to do. Uh, and I think a lot of these, these basics about building a company are things you can focus on fairly easy, uh, even if you don't have, uh, or even better if you don't have any previous experience. Yeah, that's a really good answer. I actually like the notion of being a first-time founder actually gives you sort of the benefit not having legacy thinking or legacy processes uh, in your mind. So, so I like that notion. We're going to end on that. Thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us uh, today here and uh, really appreciate that you uh, took the time to share your insights with us. And uh, yeah, wishing you all the best uh, for the company in the years to come. Thank you very much, Robin. It's great to be here. And this is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, follow us today wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if that place has a possibility to rate and review the show, please do that as well. Big, big thanks to Hanno Renner for coming on the show and to Robin Wouters for recording this interview. Our audio engineering is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Your questions, suggestions, and opinion are always very welcome. Send them to podcast at tech.eu. This was TechU Podcast. I am Andre Degler, and I will talk to you again very soon. For now, take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Bye-bye.